Let's turn our Bibles to Mark, Gospel of Mark, the seventh chapter. We're going to look at verses 24 through 30 today. Let's stand on our God's word together as we read. If you'd like to join me, it'd be great. Jesus left that place and went to the vicinity of Tyre. He entered a house and did not want anyone to know it. Yet he could not keep his presence secret. In fact, as soon as she heard about him, a woman whose little daughter was possessed by an impure spirit came and fell at his feet. The woman was Greek, born in Syrian Phoenicia. She begged Jesus to drive the demon out of her daughter. First let the children eat all they want, he told her, for it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Lord, she replied, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Then he told her, for such a reply you may go. The demon has left your daughter. She went home and found her child lying on the bed and the demon gone. Thank you, Father, for your word, for the Holy Bible. We praise you and give you thanks. We ask for your spirit to come and bear us along by his power and his grace. Thank you for this other comforter who has come to lead us in the truth today. I pray that we will be careful as we study your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Praise the Lord. God bless you. This is a text that it's also described in Matthew 15, verse 21 through 28. It's one of the texts that appear only in two of the synoptic gospels. Luke does not have this in his gospel that he has, he has written. And they're very similar, except Matthew has some characteristics that are very classic toward a Jewish audience that Mark not, does not pursue because his audience obviously is a Greek audience and particularly a Roman audience. He's writing to the church in Rome initially and then as the Holy Spirit has so beautifully done, he's preserved this gospel for all those who follow him, which is the ultimate purpose for the gospels that we might have an understanding of who our Savior is, what he's done, and what he is going to do. So we open up this text with Jesus leaving that place. Now, in the last um, text, we found ourselves in a at a table, in a, and um, Jesus' disciples eating up. Remember this, and the Pharisees came, and they were they were. I, I never get the impression the Pharisees are really there. 
They're not sitting with them. But they're there in that they're watching them. So earlier we saw that, that um, party that Matthew gave at his house, and he invited a lot of people to it. In fact, it was so full they could hardly get in or out. And there were Pharisees there. And I, I have this feeling they're kind of like standing in the corners, the dark corners, watching. That was the general sense of Pharisees' activity everywhere. They were watching all the time. They were watching to see what a person would say, not just Jesus, that was specifically in his ministry, but Pharisees were watching people to see if they would say the right things and see if they would do the right things. And if they didn't say the right things, they would immediately correct them, depending on who it was, correct them, and if they resisted, the person resisted and, and kept on in this tendency, then they would then start writing their name down. And they would report them in local synagogues, and they would do things like not allow you to come to church, things like that. Can you imagine what the effect of the church would be today if we followed people around and said, you can't come to church anymore? That would be quite, a, be quite an evangelistic move, wouldn't it? But in, within the context of Judaism, because it was a religion that was both in the synagogues, it was practiced in the houses of worship, but also it was generally observed in homes, should be, I mean, that's not completely uncharacteristic, but it was enforced in, its, in both the home and also in the street, basically, in the marketplace. And so Jesus was now trying to get away, it says, from, again, this is, this is another one of the statements of Jesus seeking solitude, seeking a place where he can go and he can be by himself. We've seen it on three occasions already so far. This is somewhat of a continuation of when his disciples went out on their missionary journey. And as they came back, they reported to him the things that they had done. And his first reaction was tremendous joy from what he had heard they had done while they were out in the field. But secondarily, he wanted to try to bring them to a place where they could kind of rest and have solitude because the same tensions that had been upon him, posed upon him, were now being imposed upon them. So they were, they'd been sent out and people followed them back to where this person they'd been talking about was, and they were also being recognized. They themselves, the 12 disciples, were being recognized as someone who was also um, participating, a participant in the, in the spread of this, this gospel and these messages and this activity of, of healing and, and deliverance and so forth. And so, again, he's seeking solitude. It's, it's a very simple text. It's a very simple story. And we could read through this and say, Jesus had mercy on a woman who had a sick child. And say, that's what this is all about. But, and that would be something to say. But it really wouldn't get at the incredible um, event that's taking place during this. When Jesus, for example called to question the distinction between the, the traditional statements about the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, about the Old Testament, and the, what he called the um, traditions of the elders. That there were two things that were developing at the same time in Judaism. There was the saving, preserving of the Old Testament, but right along next to that was the commentaries of the Old Testament, the explanations of what the Old Testament meant. And 
As I said last time, if you go and find a, um, a Jewish Bible, typically it's hard to find a Jewish Bible that has just the Bible in it. Typically it has the Bible and then it has notes around the text of the Bible and typically it's two sets of notes. And the Mishnah is one and the Tosefta is the other. And they are commentaries on what it means. And they really hold the long-standing views of what certain things mean to such a point that the meaning around it becomes as important to Judaism, and especially Judaism during this time frame, as the actual words of the Bible themselves. This, when I first heard that, I thought, you, I'm, he must be just doing this on, his, on the blackboard to kind of diagram how it looks. But then when you get a copy of it, you see exactly that. Now, it's all in Hebrew. Well, they have English also. But it's, it's, a, it's a very interesting thing to see the distinctions between what the Holy Scriptures say that came from Moses and then what through time became the, the believed and then enforced views of what that Scripture meant. And Jesus took issue with the issue of washing, purity, ceremonial cleanliness in the last time. And that ceremonial cleanliness was, you'd think it was about, well, why don't your disciples wash their hands before they eat? This was not the same as some of us remember when our mothers said, did you wash your hands before you ate? You know, this kind of sanitary thing that we do. It wasn't the same thing. It was a way to show that you were keeping the law. You were ceremonial, clean, before the eyes of God because you were doing the things that the law required. And it, and it went, it, it clearly, almost from its beginning, was a way to keep God's people pure from other people. That's when it really was a problem. It was one thing if it just cleaned from germs. You know, we make the case, well, the Bible has all kinds of things to say about hygiene and wash, like things like washing hands. Well, the Bible doesn't say a single thing about anybody washing their hands before they eat, except the priests. The only ones that are mentioned in the Bible, washing their hands, are the priests because of their work in the temple. And even that was somewhat of a ceremonial thing. And so as a result, they now said, everybody needs to wash your hands because it keeps you identified with Judaism and ultimately you stay you keep clean by not being around other people particularly Gentile people um, which was everybody else besides Jewish people at the time and so we see this th this rise of this tension between two sets of people humankind there were Jews there were Gentiles Jews we're told by God not to associate with Gentiles. Gentiles were told by Jews and by God that you are not a part of the covenant. You're not my people. You're not called. And as a result, you had this huge tension, this, this um, divide between Jews and Gentiles. And it was a serious one. And it was something that was watched, especially when Judaism started becoming invaded socially by Gentiles. At this time, all the places where Jesus has gone, you've seen some form of Gentiles there. When he went to the caves of Gennesaret, for example, on the um, eastern side 
of Galilee, northeastern side of Galilee, and he, and he met that demoniac there. Remember that? Oh, do you think that guy was a, a Jewish man? Well, of course, he might have been a Jewish man, but all the people that were herding the pigs, I don't think they were Jewish people. I don't think that the ten cities, the Decapolis, where this person was sent to go and preach the gospel, none of those people were, Gentile, were Jews. And so there's constantly this Jew-Gentile presence, and the Pharisees are bringing that out. Here again, in this particular passage, it's present again. And we're going to see that as we, as we move on. So I, I want to just kind of lay that as a, a foundation again. I know last time I... Um, by the way, Drew, good job last week. Appreciate you. Um, he was definitely a Timothy last week. I said, do you have a sermon? He said, yes. Now, if I called you up and said, do you have a sermon you could preach? How many of you would say, yes. Okay. Can I get those names, please? Chris, you take those down? <laughs> and Bob, thank you for your Timothy attitude. That was great. It was really good. And Chris, thank you. And Emmanuel, who's still worn out from the benediction last week, he's not here. So, <laughs> but it was really great because we had to go and see Karen's aunt who had had that serious stroke. And, and um, she's, I'm not sure how she's doing. She seems to be improving slightly. Um, but she does have some, some difficult times ahead of her. But we appreciate your prayers and also so quickly um, being able to arrange the service so we could go and see her, be with her last weekend. Um, welcome back, Roger and Marsha. It's great to have you back too. And everybody else, welcome back. I welcomed Roger and Marsha back and they welcomed me back. So it was really nice. And uh, I do have a sermon, by the way. I'm not just trying to you know, kill some time here. I do have a sermon to share. <laughs> so let's, let's pursue the text, okay? So Jesus left that place and went to the vicinity of Tyre. Is the map up behind me right now? Okay, well, can you see this? Okay. <laughs> um, I had a map. I guess Andre didn't get to, get to it because I got to him kind of late today. But Tyre, if you, have a, if you have a Bible with a map in your back of your Bible, you can just turn there and you can see during this time frame that Tyre and Sidon were um, both cities or more correctly regions to the um, northwest of Galilee. If you find the Red Sea, see, excuse me, find the Sea of Galilee and just go northwest, you'll find them, Tyre and Sidon. And this was the land of the Gentiles. This is the land historically of the pagans. It was modern-day Lebanon. And we see the, the, the thick presence of impurity. Those who are pagans, they're impure. What a great place to go to try to find freedom and find safety and solitude from the masses. Well, unfortunately... The masses that were in Sidon and Tyre were also the masses who had already come south to Capernaum to witness these wonderful works of God that had taken place before. And so as a result, this was not just totally localized to the Jews in Galilee, Jesus' movement, the Jesus' work, the Jesus' movement. It was all over this whole region. It was told on numbers of occasions. And everyone from everywhere would come to try to be healed or to hear his teaching. And so as a result, he's going northwest to try to find the solitude, 
But almost as soon as he gets there and he enters into a house, there's no idea whose house this is. He enters into a house. Um, he didn't want anybody to know it. It was a secret trip. Yet he could not keep his presence secret. Um, in this attempt to try to find solitude for himself and his disciples, um, even among the pagan Gentiles, he found that he already had an audience that knew who he was, knew who the disciples were for that matter. Even the disciples were told, go out only to the Jewish people. They were told only to only go out to preach to the Jewish people. But they went out and preached to the Jewish people and everybody listened and everybody followed. And so there's this, there's this, these two things going on at once. The idea that the Messiah, the Jewish Messiah, is going to come for his people. And if Jesus is this Jewish Messiah coming for his people, then you've got to do one of two things. You can say that his people are not listening very well, or his people is expanding in its definition. The definition of his people is expanding. How many of you have a Jewish ancestry? Anybody here like that have a Jewish ancestry? Okay. Are you raising your hand? Oh, he's exercising his arm. Okay. So we got one person here. Can you imagine if Jesus came for Jews only? What are we doing here today? It's as simple as that, really. You just start going back from where we are right now and recognizing what the Scriptures of the Old Testament proclaim the Messiah is going to do. He's going to come and save who? His people. So the way the Pharisees are seeing that is, if He's the Messiah, then He's coming for His people. And His people are, first and foremost, the best of His people, accordingly, according to the Pharisees, are the Pharisees. And so they start running into problems almost immediately to the point where they want to kill this person who's coming for them. But it's incredible the number of people who are responding to him and declaring him Messiah, declaring him an anointed one, declaring him a great teacher, and the person coming from God, the numbers of people are just thronging them. And this, and this started with Jesus and just continues on through the whole church age, through the, first, the early church age. The Apostle Paul, first thing he does, goes to Antioch, Antioch, right? He's trying to pull out these Jewish Christians. He gets saved on the way to Antioch. He remains in Antioch. He starts preaching that Jesus is the Christ. And what happens in Antioch? A horde of Gentiles start coming to faith. To such a point that the identity of Antioch was Gentiles. Gentiles. Peter gets trapped in it. He goes up there with his little group of people to see what's going on up there. Next thing you know, he's over there with the Gentiles eating their food and dancing. This is really great. You guys are believers. We're brothers. It just exploded to the point where there was many, many more Gentiles were coming to faith than Jews. Because the Jews, in, some, in many cases, were just holding on to this narrow view of who the Messiah is and what he's coming to do. And it's based upon the traditions, the traditions of the elders, of those who made commentary about what the scripture means. 
trying to keep this massive wave at bay. That's going on right here. This is not just a story about a poor woman with a child who needs something. Jesus said, well, don't tell anybody, but, you know, I want to help you too. There's more to it than that. When he confronted the Pharisees, this is a continuation of this confrontation of the Pharisees. It's so easy to get to a place where we think that my religion, my Christianity is for me and my little group. Still, it is. To the point where, where do you go to church? Well, I go there. As if that's the only church in the whole region. And we, we tend to, to, to become small and, and you know, isolated in our relationship to the world around us. As if it's Christians looking for Christians. It, it, it's 80 or 85% of the church growth in America is through transfer growth. It's from Christians over there coming over here. It's transfer growth. 85%. That's an incredible statistic. And it didn't just start. It's, just, it's, a, it's a characteristic. When the pilgrims came, God bless America, Christian nation, they came because of religious persecution. They wanted to start a country. And almost instantly on the ships coming over, they had a designation of the saints and the strangers. The saints and the strangers. And they were going to stay clear of the strangers and they were going to build the kingdom of God in New England. And see, it's still there, right? Well, you guys were there recently. But the kingdom of God is still... Really? Yeah, guys, you, you, you're pretty cloistered in Maryland, right? You don't get New England jokes anymore? You know? <laughs> of course it's not. Well, there you go. Why'd you leave? <laughs> Why'd you leave heaven? I'm just kidding. I don't need a response. I've only got an hour left, okay? So. <laughs> Saints and strangers, and within 20 years... The strangers were overwhelming the saints to such a point that the Christian, quote, Christian schools were turning into secular schools, pagan schools. And this is not, you know, just recently. This happened within 25 years or 30 years of the pilgrims and the Puritans coming to America. This kind of phenomena took place. And it was primarily, one of the main primary reasons was, is because the Puritans and the pilgrims, they wanted to stay pure in their views, their theology and their way of life. They wanted to become pure. And so they were the first ones, and a lot of it was because of animals, wild animals, but they were the first ones to put up gated cities. Gated cities. In America. To keep people out. Versus seeing that they have been called to go and the kingdom of God is one that has a huge variety. We read it this morning. The glory of the Lord covering the earth as the waters cover the sea. How could that possibly happen if it's just covered with people like me? People, people of my kind. People believe like me. So we, we, it, it's hard for us to kind of back away from how we view the world and how we view things now. No, no one rises up in the morning and says, I'm so glad that, you know, the 
that Peter had that vision on the, hill, on the top of that uh, roof and that the Gentiles were open to the gospel. I'm so glad that happened. We don't say that, do we? But it's absolutely a, the connection we have. That we were the ones who were on the outside. And the people of God were the Jewish people. And the only reason I, I say this is because this is a five-minute sermon if we don't bring up this subject, just like the last week's, it's just a matter of, well, you start, should start washing your hands before you eat. That's really important. Wash your hands before you eat. Okay, next, next text. But, but Mark is in a city where he sees pagan people and Jewish people, just by, for their lives' sake, are trying to cloister together around their, their small community within this highly pressurized and highly persecuted environment under Nero Caesar at this time. And he brings out this text of this Seraphonician woman in order to highlight to these persecuted persons that you're not there to try to get away from people hurting you. That, it's a terrible thing when you're in persecution. It's the worst thing that could happen probably. But ultimately, we're here to reach out to find God's people and to bring them in through the message of Christ. It really is a message of encouragement and stirring up us to recognize that Jesus is for all His people and His people come from every kindred and nation and tribe and tongue. We should, tell that, we should say that to ourselves on a regular basis. Interesting thing when we see that uh, in verse, um, verse 2, in fact, as soon as she heard about him, a woman whose little daughter was possessed by an impure spirit came and fell at his feet. When was the last time you saw somebody fall at his feet? About a child wanting to have... Remember Jarius, the synagogue ruler in the um, fifth chapter? Remember that? We studied that together. This, this person who was a synagogue leader who came to Jesus, even after all of the controversy that surrounded Jesus, he came to Jesus and he begged him to heal his daughter. What a contrast Mark draws. There's no, there's no person that could be further away from... That, that, of course, was proper. Jesus the Jew, Jesus the Jewish Messiah is ministering to Jewish people. You know, and their children... Seems like that's proper, but think about what Mark has done now. He's brought out this, he's highlighted, I should say, this story of Jesus being begged by a Gentile. He even says a little bit more information about her. He says that she's a Phoenician woman from Syria, Phoenicia. Born, she's Greek. She's definitely a pagan, right, George? She's Greek. Born in Syria, Phoenicia. And she begged Jesus to drive a demon out of her daughter. Now, Jesus is not just responding to her when he speaks. One might ask why Jesus would be so disdainful of a person like this. When he says to her that, why should we take the children's food? See that in verse 28? What? Excuse me, 27. First, let the children eat all they want, he told her, for it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. 
Well, I think we should recognize something very quickly. Jesus isn't just talking to this woman. There's other people present there besides just the woman, aren't there? There's his disciples. There's Jewish people who are present. And there's very likely the Pharisees who are present. And so when he speaks these words, at first you get this sense, this is exactly what the Pharisees want to hear. You're finally getting it right, man. We don't have anything to do with Jewish people, with Gentiles. You're finally getting it right. And Jesus is literally just setting them up. Just as he did with the washing of the hands. Setting them up to hear a much more important and much broader and far-reaching principle. What an insight. This woman has incredible follow-up. She says in verse 28, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Almost as if, where'd that come from? It has, it has a remarkable insight. This person's not, a, not some Hebrew scholar. She doesn't think that the Hebrews wrote a lot about the Gentiles and how one day the Gentiles were going to be the ones who are also recipients of the gospel. None of that stuff is known about her. But just from an insight that she has as she's standing there, she makes this statement that even the dogs under the table get the crumbs from the master's table. In Mark's gospel, Jesus is kind of not shocked, but he is ignited by that response. Can I refer to something else that might be parallel to this, perhaps? Jesus said, who do people say that I am? Who do people say that I am? And his disciples said, some say you're John the Baptist, rose the dead. Some say you're Elijah. Some say you're that other prophet. He says, yeah, but who do you say that I am? And Peter said, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. Now that's a good answer. But Jesus' response is, that didn't come from you, Peter. That came from my Father in heaven. That insight is something that Jesus highlighted because of the significance of what Peter was saying. And right here, we, we, we just get this so tangled up with, well, she had the faith. It's like, you know, the woman with the issue of blood. She had the faith to touch him and her faith made that happen. Her faith made it happen. Well, that's great. If you want to look at that within the context where we're at now, but we have this faith thing that's built upon the person's faith independent of anything except their personal, innate, interior faith has caused something to take place. We forget that word far. By grace are you saved through faith. And faith is not of yourself. It is the gift of God. And we see right here in this text of Scripture something that is just as profound. If this woman is just from the profundity of her heart, she's saying, even dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And Jesus kind of does this. 
that flesh and blood hasn't revealed this to you. This is a major portion of my message. That the kingdom of God is coming. The rule of God is coming. And it's here through me. I hope, are you guys with me? I feel like I'm repeating myself. Maybe I am for myself. But he then told her, for such a reply, you may go, the demon has left your daughter. Who saw him, who heard him say that? As I said earlier, let's just cut to the chase. The Pharisees heard him make that response to her. They heard her make that response to his very appropriate thing about you don't give the children's bread to dogs. I, mean, I just see them like, man, it's going to be a good day after all. And then she says that and they go, correct her. Tell her she's wrong. The children's bread doesn't belong to you dogs. And he said, for that insight, for you seeing that value, that truth, what you request is going to take place. Your daughter is going to be freed from this demonic oppression. Demonic oppression. To such a point that she went home and found her child lying on a bed and the demon was gone. This is truly truly a statement, an early statement, an early view of the nature of the kingdom of God. No wonder Jesus didn't want to give himself to the people after that great feeding of the 5,000 people. Because they wanted to come and make him king and he would be their miracle worker king from then on. And, he would, and Judaism would just rise and just Eliminate every, all the kings of the world. That's what it said. All the kingdoms of the world would be destroyed under the Messiah. <laughs> There's a big difference between all the kingdoms of the world being destroyed and all the kingdoms of the world coming under the one kingdom of the Messiah. Which is exactly what the same message of the gospel is today. That all God's people are going to be gathered to him and he is going to rule over us forever and ever. Do you believe that? But how can you? You're Gentiles. No, just see if you're awake. This is the bringing in of the kingdom of God, the rule of God, the new age coming. An age where God's people, all God's people, and that definition of God's people is going to change. Actually, it's going to be enforced. God's people are all those who call upon his name, are going to come to him. And he is going, just like the scripture we read this morning, that, that scripture is in Isaiah. That's 700 years before um, Jesus ever walked the earth. And what is the characteristic of it? All these nations and all these adverse persons, both in nature and in relationships, are all going to come and they're going to center themselves in this child, this Messiah. Jewish people saw it as a time when all Jewish people were going to become prominent. Reality, the people of God has changed. We see this new characteristic, this new spiritual breed of people that are God's people. And so profoundly the case 
in Mark's life. As he is looking at people who are trying to gather into themselves. I mean, it, it, it kind of should put us to a bit of um, humility. When is it too hard to witness? When is it too hard to share the message of Christ? When, when's it really too, too much of a sacrifice? When it costs too much to do it? It's, you see it all the time now. You can't, you can't do this because, and why can't you do it? This, this was in a, we've been we're in these discussions constantly with people. Why can't you do something? Why can't you speak in a certain way? Why can't you proclaim the message of Christ? Why can't you do it? And what follows is some reason, a reasonable reason why you can't do it. And I would say 100% of the time, it's because I'm going to lose something I want around me. I want something I'm going to have. I'm going to lose it. we can that's why we're here that's why we exist that's why we have the things we have that's why we have the worlds we live in so we can reach them with the message of Christ I think I'm going to leave that thought with you today